Be seated. Bible, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, please. Uh, we'll look at verses 14 through 18, and we will finish up, Lord willing, this morning um, on the, the importance and the significance of the, of the Lord's Supper. We'll see, we'll close out, Lord willing, on this, and then, Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we'll start through 2 Samuel. We'll begin our journey through 2 Samuel. Um, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. And uh, if you're physically able to do so, I am going to ask that you would stand one final time as we, as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word, 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, beginning in verse 14, going through verse 18, I pray we would hear what the word of the Lord is to us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge, judge what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel, after the flesh, are not they which eat of sacrifices, partakers of the altar. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would grant us wisdom and understanding, guidance in this time as we discuss the importance and the significance of the Lord's Supper. And we pray that you would bless our time in the Word now, in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So, um, one of the... Uh, one of the um, uh, one of the questions I want to start off with comes from the Baptist Catechism that was written by a man named Benjamin Keach um, from the, the uh, from the 17th century. He, he simply asks this question in the Catechism versus one, uh, question 102. What is the Lord's Supper? And he responds by this answer. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ in which through giving and receiving bread and wine according to his appointment, his death is displayed, and the worthy receivers are, not according to physical and human means, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood, with all of his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. And in reality, as we come to the, to the Lord's Supper, and as we think about the Lord's Supper and the importance of the Lord's Supper, and even the significance of the table from which we partake, when we do partake, I think there's a couple of different, <clears throat> there's, there's a couple of different points that I want to make um, as we as we look at our text and as we <clears throat> as we look at uh, uh, the understanding of 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 what the the table signifies and the importance of the table when we partake, but and and I want to start where we sort of left off last week, and that's simply starting at this point. The significance and the importance of the Lord's Supper is seen in the fact that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of renewal. It is an ordinance of renewal. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that both baptism and the Lord's Supper symbolize our salvation and that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of, of, matu of, of, uh, of maturing. Um, Herman Bavnik, uh, or Bavnik said, uh, or Bavink, excuse me, the Lord's Supper is the sacrament of maturation. And so I think for us who are in Christ, we need to understand that though we are united to Christ once and for all, we grow ever deeper as we as we grow with him, as as we're as we're walking with him, as we as we as we grow in our faith. Uh, the Lord's Supper is used by the Lord to grow us uh, in our faith. It, it is used for uh, to encourage us and to challenge us to to examine our walk with Christ and and how we are walking with him. And so in Second Corinthians 416, for instance, 
Paul writes this, though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day through, through God's means, through, through the grace of God given to us, by, by God's grace that is becoming evident through us as we, as we grow in Christ, as we walk with Christ, as we serve Christ, as we love Christ. Christ is being glorified. We are growing in, in our understanding of Christ. And so the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table really is a covenant renewal. It is a, it's a covenant renewal. Every time we partake the Lord's, in the Lord's Supper, we are renewing our fellowship and our relationship with God by eating with God. We are renewing our covenant relationship with God every time we eat, every time we feast from the table of the Lord. We are renewing our covenant with God. We are renewing that covenant through feasting with God himself. So the table isn't just something that we come to and we're like, oh, this is great, this is fantastic. We get to eat together, we get to memorize, remember what the Lord is doing. You understand that when we take of the table, we are legitimately feasting before and with God at the table, right? Like there's, and we'll talk about this in a minute, there's nothing special necessarily about the elements. It's not the, it's not the bread and the wine themselves or the juice themselves that, 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 uh, that, that God transforms in any way, but rather it is God who is spiritually present with us as we feast from his table. And so we're renewing our covenant through this feast, just like Israel did in Exodus 12, 17 through 20. And, and just like they did throughout their, their years through the various feasts um, and, and through the peace offerings and the free will offerings and all of these things, Leviticus 7, 11 through 36 all lays all of this out and, and how the individual offerers would, would feast and could feast with God by partaking in the feasts of Israel. Jesus Christ himself is the fulfillment of all of the feasts and he has prepared all of this together and is, he, has, he, has, he has unified all of these feasts in one and that is at the cross of Christ that is signified in the table of the Lord. And so the entirety of our salvation then is reflected through this covenant or this, this ordinance of renewal. It's, it's, it's reflected, the entirety of our salvation is reflected here in this simple meal. In this one simple meal, the entirety of our salvation is symbolically, visually seen. The whole of our faith, and what is the whole of our faith? It is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Our faith is not in a, in a table or a meal. It's not in a baptism. It's in Christ Jesus. And it's in Christ that then we come together and we feast and we eat. And we rejoice in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But I will say this. In feasting from the table of the Lord, we are also pronouncing a very real truth. And that is this. And that is the whole of the new creation that is coming. And say, so, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you see, the Lord's Supper has cosmic significance to it because our sin had cosmic and has cosmic significance. Our sin was against God, and as a result, we dragged creation and all the cosmos into sin. 
And so as we partake of the table, we rejoice that in Christ all things are made new. And the promise and the groaning of creation itself is not to be obliterated. The promise and the rejoicing of creation and the groaning of creation is that there is coming a day when Jesus is going to renew it all. He's not just going to destroy it and just blow it up. And creation isn't groaning for some kind of death death sentence for it to finally come to pass. Creation is groaning so that in the end, all things are completely made new. And we rejoice in that. We rejoice that all things are made new. That is, that the meaning of all creation finds a significance in Christ. That the nature of God is clearly displayed in the table. The nature of man is clearly seen that that apart from Christ, we are all sinners gravely in danger of hell. but But in Christ, we are made new. And as a result, we are given the righteousness of God. Therefore, we see not only the nature of God, the holiness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the, 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 the holiness of God, all of this, the righteousness of God are clearly displayed, but we also see the work of Christ in the table. The entirety then of the kingdom of God is that we feast at God's table while we anticipate the fullness of the day in which we will feast before God, Him, the very presence of God, the face of God in that day. And then so there is the ordinance of renewal within the significance of the Lord's Supper. But there is the union that is with Christ, our union which is in Christ, that is so very important. What do I mean by that? Well, notice what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Notice what he says here. He says in verse 16, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is, not, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. And what do you mean by pastor, but reunion with our union with Christ? Well, understand that we are through by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are united together with Christ who is our head. And I don't, I don't mean that in the way in which, I mean like this head, uh, you know, is attached to my body and, you know, it looks and does whatever. But instead, what I mean, uh, what I'm intending here is for us to understand that Christ is our head in the sense that he is our king. He is the king. And we are united with the king through faith, by grace, in Christ. And so, Bavink says again, the supper is a most intimate bonding with Christ himself, just as food and drink are united with our body. And again, that's why Paul writes, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not the participation in the body of Christ? And so when we speak like this, what we're specifically speaking of is that our union is with Christ crucified and resurrected. We rejoice in Christ. And that's why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, in the later chapter, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so Paul, very much encapsulating this in an earlier epistle, in Galatians 2, 20, he writes this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we see that Christ died to unite us and to bring us into union with himself. And that Christ's sacrifice is a single event. 
It is a single event. Every time we partake of the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, we are proclaiming his shed blood for us as a memorial. And what do I mean by that when I say as a memorial? Well, what I mean is that in the Old Covenant, sacrifices, there was not only a need for the shedding of blood, but it was also necessary that the blood be displayed. Whether we think of in the terms of Acts, right, in the, in the book of Acts, where he had to, they, had to, they had to dip their brushes in, into, uh, into the blood of the, in the lamb's blood and then paint their doorposts with it all around, or whether it was later on in the tabernacle and the temple, the blood had to be sloshed on the sides of the, of the altar, and it was a very bloody mess, right? And then there was blood that ran down, that ran down through the temple complex and the tabernacle complex outside of it. It was clearly seen. It was clearly displayed. When, when, when every time a man took his hands and he placed it upon the, the bull or the ram or the lamb and he, or the turtle doves and he then slit the throat of this lamb or this ram or this bull or he twisted the head off of the dove or twisted the head of the dove and broke its neck to offer it as a sacrifice. This was a clear display of God's commandment of holiness and what was required. And so God displayed the blood through the Passover lamb and through the other sacrifices. And our memorial is twofold. Ready? It is for us to first and foremost remember the work of Christ. And it is also for God to remember us according to the blood of Christ. It is for us, it is for us to remember the work of Christ. And in the supper and in the table, God remembers the work of Christ through his shed blood on the cross. And so Psalm 25, 6 and 7 says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to the steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And so in the Lord's Supper, we partake, we partake with Christ. We partake with Christ. And we partake of Christ. Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. But how do we do that, right? Well, we do that as a symbol. We do that as a symbol, but not merely as a symbol. right? Nor, nor do we do it by physically eating and drinking the blood and body, eating the body of Christ, right? Because there is a belief out there that, that would say to us that every time you partake of the supper or the bread and the, the, you drink of the cup, if you're allowed to do that, um, that therefore it's somehow transformed into Christ's actual flesh and actual blood. We adamantly do not believe that. We adamantly reject that. It is not transformed into the actual blood of Christ, right? It is not transformed into the actual body of Christ, but it is by symbol, it is we are reminded of our partaking of him, our union with Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So listen, listen to how the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith states this. In chapter 30 in section 7, he says, People who receive the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, who outwardly partake of the visible elements in this ordinance, do so inwardly by faith, really and truly, not physically and bodily. They spiritually receive and feast upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The body and the blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically, but rather spiritually to the faith of believers in the Lord's Supper. This is how the elements are to be received in their outward senses. And this is true for us as we partake. 
We, we feast from the table of the Lord, rejoicing in Christ, from the spiritual presence of Christ in the supper, meaning that we partake of the supper our, and our faith is built up and built up in and on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The wicked are not to receive the supper, right? Why? Because they lack faith and they're not in Christ. Those who are apart from Christ should never partake of the table. And in the supper, then the Lord says to us, you are mine. All that the cross has accomplished is yours through grace, by grace, through faith in Christ. And so that does lead us to the question of, of who partakes of the table. Well, historically, Baptists have fallen into three categories of, of how we view who should take. The first view is represented by John Bunyan. Bunyan believed that anybody and everybody who professed faith in Christ should participate, whether or not they were part of a local church or whether or not they were under the discipline of a local church. It did not matter to him. Then we have the second group, which are called the, the, the strict communionists or the closed communionists, who limit those who participate to those who are members of that specific local church. And then you have restricted communion, that is, they, they, that is those who are invited to partake of the supper from a, from a, uh, from a similar conviction and practice, who participate so long as they are members in good standing in their respective congregations and are living holy lives and not under the discipline of that local or of any congregation, rightly, rightly disciplined. So that's generally how we have viewed it, uh, generally how Baptists throughout history have viewed it. But, but as we move on then, we, are, we need to ask the question, are we united with Christ's body, right? Are we united with Christ's body? 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of this one bread. And even though the elements as they come to us are in separate parts, it is still one loaf that we partake, it is one cup that we drink from. Because it is Christ to whom we are united to, all of us. And therefore we must be reconciled to one another before we come to the supper. And so this is why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, So if you, were, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Or again in 1 Corinthians 5, 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drinker, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, let me say this. There have been a lot of people who use that verse and say, well, see, I can't eat. I can't eat with anybody who, who claims the name of Jesus. I can't, I can't have them in my home. I can't, I can't eat with them. But what if I were to tell you that this, in his, Paul's command to say not even to eat with such a one, is not a commandment for you to take them out to eat and encourage them to repent, but instead is a direct application that they are to be barred from the Lord's table. That is what he is referring. He is not referring to the fact that, well, we've got some, we've got some people in the church who are wayward. I'm not to go after them and eat with them because, well, they're sinners, you know, that's, that, is, that is against everything else that Paul taught, that we are to treat them as tax collectors and sinners. In other words, we call them to repentance. We go after them. We love them with the grace of God, calling them to believe the gospel. 
And so Jesus would later go on and say in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. By the way, you understand that this is, this is, this is coming from the Old Testament, and Jesus is applying it directly into the, the life of the local church. And part of the joy of welcoming brothers and sisters is that no matter the number of worldly divisions or worldly disagreements, or even perhaps even, even um, secondary, um, secondary and tertiary doctrinal disagreements that we may have, we are all still one in Christ. And we can celebrate that fact. And so in saying that, right, in saying that, let me say this. The benefits of the Lord's Supper are immense, the benefits of the Lord's Supper are immense. You say, well, what do you mean by that, right? Well, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, again, what is it that Paul is saying here? The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Have you thought about the implications of, of this oneness in Christ? Have you thought about the implications of this oneness in Christ? You say, well, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is that there's joyful communion first and foremost with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We have Trinitarian communion with God. That is that we have the joy of being together with our God every time we feast together at the table of Jesus. Because Jesus tells his local church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. This wasn't given to the lost. This was given to the local church. This was given to the church. Jesus desires to eat with us, to dine with us, to fellowship with us. And so at the table then, we, we realize that we are guests of the king. Luke twenty two twenty nine through 30 says, I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We are guests, invited guests, invited citizens of the king. And to be at God's feast is the greatest joy of all time. This is why Paul would later go on in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, let a man examine himself first before he partakes. Right? Let him examine himself first before he partakes. Luke 14, 15 says, blessed is everyone who will eat, the bre eat bread in the kingdom of God. Many who were originally invited through the Old Covenant have been cast away, or they, cast, they, they were cast away because of their sin, right? Because of their wickedness. And Jesus talks about this, about the uninvited, the, the man who comes in and he doesn't have his, his, his robes on, and the king comes in at the wedding feast of his son, and he says, uh, you don't have robes on, what are you doing here, right? And then he casts him out because they were not of the kingdom. But then there's not only joyful Trinitarian communion, but there's also joyful communion with one another. So when we partake of the table of the Lord, there is a common union that we have with Christ and therefore with one another. Right? So every time, if I invite you to my home and I say we're going to have spaghetti, right? And we're going to have spaghetti and we're going to have meat sauce and garlic bread and everything else. Everybody partakes of the same dish. Everybody partakes of the same bowl. Everybody partakes of the same meal, 
the same food. We are all partaking together, and therefore we are breaking bread. We are fellowshipping and communion, communing with one another. And the same is true in the supper. We are all partaking of the same Savior, the same Jesus. And because of this, there's no more enmity between us. There's no more strife. There's no more arguing, no more bickering between us. Because the Lord's Supper is the long prophesied banquet of the peoples from every tribe and tongue. And it is an end to the petty rivalries between peoples and nations. And so in a very real way, in the table of the Lord, Revelation 19 is fulfilled. Revelation 19 is fulfilled by us partaking of the table of the Lord. But then there's also the, 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 the reminding us of our justification that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are made into new creations and made right with God. We are now in covenant with Jesus. That is that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us and now through faith in him we can be reconciled to God. But there are other things. Adoption, sanctification. These are other benefits that God has given to us and that we are made new in Christ. But the last thing I would simply point out to us is that that we have satisfaction in Christ. And what I mean by that is God in in Psalm 81 verse 10 prophesies to the nation of Israel. And and he's constantly saying this. He says this in Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea as well. Um, Something of a a similar nature when he says in Psalm 81 10, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. God is constantly saying that throughout the Bible. Or some, some, re, uh, some reiteration of that. Some iteration of that. And this is, this is what creation was meant to be, is an outpouring of God's abundance. Mary sings of Jesus like this in Luke 153, quoting Psalm 146.7. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. How could Mary sing of Jesus like that unless he is the literal fulfillment of what was promised. And we are satisfied in Christ. Spiritually. Jesus himself said in John 6.35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me. Notice this. Will not hunger. He will not hunger. Why? Well and Jesus goes on. He says and he who believes in me will never thirst. John 4. How could he say this? How is he saying this? How could he say this? Ultimately, he's pointing us not only to himself, but also to the table of the Lord. But there's one other benefit I would say to us. Two other benefits I would just quickly mention. One is victory over Satan, sin, and death in the cross. You say, well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, here's what I mean by that. Victory in war is always in the scripture followed by feasting. Always. Always. In Revelation 18, when God puts, Jesus puts down uh, the, the, the nations, there's a feast that happens in Revelation 19. When Joshua um, entered the land, he, and, and he enjoyed a meal, a fellowship meal with, with the nation of Israel and with, with, uh, with, with God himself. Abraham enjoyed bread and wine and a meal with Melchizedek in Genesis 14, 18. And our feasting, amazingly, our feasting is in the presence of our enemies. 
so much so that the sting of death is sin and the law gives sin its strength in that it pronounces all guilty before God apart from Christ. But now through Christ, all Christians are victorious and can and will experience Christ's victory. Therefore, the supper gives us assurance of our forgiveness of sin because of the work of Christ. Not because of your work, not because of how hard you're trying, but because of Jesus. And remember, in saying this, Colossians 2, 11-15, there's victory then because of this. We have victory over the cosmic powers because of Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2, 11-15 to the church at Colossae. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, flesh he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses." having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over over them in it. And so we rejoice in our victory because of Christ. And so I could spend time talking about the grace of God that comes to us through the through 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 Christ. But I want to mention one other thing. And that is the proclamation of the gospel. Listen to what listen to what Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11 about one of the benefits of the table of the Lord. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. To who? To us? Well, certainly to us. I mean, we need to be reminded of Christ's death on our, on our part. But to who? Well, there is an expectation as you walk through 1 Corinthians. Paul even says that there is an expectation that there will be unbelievers in your midst. Not that they should partake, but that in our partaking, they should see us partaking. And in seeing us partake, they are then The gospel is then proclaimed to them. The gospel is certainly proclaimed to them. They not only hear the gospel, but now they see the gospel in visible form. And so the supper comes at no cost to us, but at great cost to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It comes at a great cost. Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep and even becomes our food. And in proclaiming the gospel, we are proclaiming the Lord's death to those who don't know Christ. Because it is the gospel made visible to a world, to the world, every time we partake. And in the Lord's table, then, there is a pledge of our faithfulness and a future hope that we partake in. Because the desire for food is always good, right? But sin always distorts that reality. Because we desire satisfaction in this life, and so therefore we do all kinds of things. We fall into all kinds of immoralities and all kinds of sin, even overeating, in order to try to get satisfaction that this life can never give us. Right? In addition to overindulgences and things that are meant to be enjoyed as good, we also lust for forbidden fruit, right? Stolen bread tastes sweet, the harlot says in Proverbs 9, 13 through 18. 
So when we go after forbidden things, we dine with Satan. Hence, when Israel is forbidden to take part in the sacrificial meals of the nations right, and only express their allegiance to God, this is why. And this is one of the issues at stake with Daniel and his three friends when they're, and their refusal to eat at the king of Babylon's table. 1 Corinthians 10, 21 says, you cannot, eat, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so in summary, let me just, let me just close by reminding us of this. We are not waiting on the kingdom. Now, the kingdom hasn't come in its fullness yet. The kingdom has arrived. You say, what do you mean? Well, the Lord's Supper says the kingdom has arrived. Jesus himself said that the kingdom is at hand when he was here. And the supper is, is the feast from the Lord's table now. And the supper is the fulfillment of Passover, ending our bondage to sin. Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed for us. And so we celebrate the festival of of, of the, in the Lord's table through the fulfillment of Christ at his table. But it's also not only the celebration or the ending of Passover, but also the fulfillment of the Feast of Booth and the festival of first fruits of the harvest because Christ is the resurrection of the first fruits. He is the promised resurrection of the first fruits who we will follow one day. And so, yes, the kingdom has come, and yes, we are awaiting fully for, the, for, for that to, uh, to, real, uh, to be realized and all nations to, through the gospel to be plowed under and placed under the feet of Christ. But we don't wait on the kingdom. The kingdom has arrived. Just because the kingdom is also coming doesn't mean the kingdom hasn't arrived already. The Lord's Supper says that the kingdom is coming but that has also arrived. And so we look forward to being able one day to feast in the very, in the very, before the very feast, before the very face of Jesus. As we feast on that day before Jesus himself and the Father himself and the Spirit himself, we feast and we rejoice in that day. The table of the Lord. And maybe I've said a lot of things you haven't understood, but, but if you haven't heard anything else, let me just boil it down. The Lord's Supper is really super important. It just is. It doesn't save us, right? But it is important. And we must partake and, and share that view of the importance of the table of the Lord. Because our view of the table of the Lord will shape how we view everything else in the church, in the life of the church. It is imperative that we see it correctly and rightly in order for us to follow Christ in the way that he has called us to, as, as the church of Jesus Christ. So let's pray together, and then we will sing and be dismissed. Father, we are thankful that in Christ we can celebrate, and we do celebrate the coming of the kingdom, that the kingdom is here and the kingdom is here now, and yet we also wait the fulfillment. We wait for the, for the, for the kingdom's fullness to be realized, for the nations to be plowed under, by the power of the gospel, that they would bow the knee to Christ and that we would see your great glory being realized as the nations bow the knee to the gospel. Our prayer is that, is that as, we, as we are faithful to preach and proclaim the gospel, as we're faithful to proclaim King Jesus, as we're faithful to do this, Lord, may you be glorified in us and through us that we would be faithful 
whether it's our friends or our neighbors or, or wherever you send us, that we would be faithful to proclaim King Jesus, that we would honor Christ, that we would see what we do here not as meaningless, but as full of meaning, not just in the table, but even in the gathering together as your people, that it is full of meaning and ramifications and implications. So let us rejoice in Christ now, we pray. And let us celebrate as we close in our songs. In Jesus' name, amen.